received Christ as Lord and Savior, but you've never really gone further in your walk with God, or maybe you've backslidden a little bit, or maybe you have a vibrant walk with the Lord, but you just want to maintain where you are and continue growing. Understand, through Jesus Christ, you can have life in his name. And all three of these aspects of what Christ offers us applies to wherever you are at in your Christian life. And the first thing that we see here, and again, it's mentioned three times in this passage, is that Christ offers us peace. He says, peace, three times in this passage. Notice peace is also used in the next slide I've got to mention. Peace is used 92 times in the New Testament. It's a very rich study if you do a thorough concordance search or if you go into one of the software packages where they actually lay out the way that the word in the Greek is used in the New Testament. Twice other places in the Gospel of John, two other times, we see this idea of peace being used before Jesus went to the cross. In John 14, 27, he said to the disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he said to them, and again, Jesus, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, he said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John 16, 33, right before he went to the garden, he said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So 92 times in the New Testament we see this idea of peace, and it's used, I think, in two different, two different aspects or respects. First of all, we have the idea of peace with God, and I'm not going to be exhaustive. I'm just going to give you one particular illustration of each of these ideas. Peace with God. Peace with God is illustrated several places in Pauline epistles. But the primary one that I think stands out is in Romans chapter 5. Paul tells us this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is defined this way in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access to faith into this grace in which we stand. and We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So through Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished, we have peace with God in the sense of we have that restored relationship with God the Father. This is the heart of the gospel. And going back to John chapter 20, we can see that when Jesus was saying to the disciples, peace be with you, that's what he was talking about primarily. That's the heart of the gospel, the fact that the disciples could experience that restored relationship with God the Father. And so if you've never put your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, understand that you can have that available to you if you would receive him today. Now, going beyond just this idea of peace with God, we also have the idea of peace of God. So this is talking about peace in our daily life. And just one example, and when I lead the pastoral prayer, a lot of times you notice I start off the prayer time talking about what Paul says in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, about through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests be made known unto God. It bookends by saying, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if you want personal peace in your life on a daily basis, you need to apply the principle of praying with thanksgiving. And that's just one of the aspects of peace of God that you can have in your life. When I was a basic training chaplain at Fort Jackson for two years, one verse that I always gave the basic trainees every cycle without fail because it was simple it was very applicable to where they were, of course, because they were being yelled at by drill sergeants every day. 
You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26.3. Just memorize that verse and then apply it to whatever situation you find yourself in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed. Another translation puts it, whose mind is fixed on you. That means that your focus is totally on God. And if we apply it to the New Testament, it means that our eyes are fixed like Chaplain Daybeck preached on last week from Hebrews chapter 12. Your, your, your eyes are fixed. Your mind is stayed completely on Jesus Christ. And your confidence and your trust is in God and in God alone. That's peace of God for daily living. And with all the things going on in our world and in our own individual worlds, we need to have that peace of God in order to survive, don't we? So Jesus Christ offers us peace. And if you don't have peace right now, I challenge you to settle that today before you leave the sanctuary. He also offers us power. That's described here in this passage in the middle section where he gives them the purpose for them being sent because he tells them that as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Notice that each of the four Gospels, and this is something for you to maybe take home and study this week on your own. Each of the four Gospels has what I call a great commission verse or passage at the end of it. In John's passage, it's, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, you also have different passages after the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which describe a distinct purpose for the disciples being sent. In Matthew's gospel, the purpose was to make disciples through teaching and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Mark, it is preaching the gospel to all people groups in the world. In Luke, in that passage here, Luke 24, verses 44 through 47, the emphasis is that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached throughout the world. And then here in John, the idea is that through the preaching that the disciples would do, we would be seeing the declaration of God's judgment on sins, yes, but also the means of forgiving those sins. Most Protestants reject the notion that the disciples were given the actual authority to absolve people of sin through their own personal power. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about here is that through the preaching of the gospel, they would not only understand the idea that their sins would be judged, but also that they could have forgiveness or remission of sins. And he said, because the Father has sent me in like fashion, I am sending you. So that is the purpose for the disciples. And I dare say that as we study the Scripture in the New Testament, that is one of the main purposes for us in glorifying God, having that purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice also he tells them that they will receive the Holy Spirit. The next slide says something to that effect. From Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You notice here, Jesus did not give them an exception clause. He did not say this is an optional thing. He said that you will receive power. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. We notice in Acts chapter 2, that's what happened at Pentecost. And he said, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be responsible for carrying out the message of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Talking about the different areas of influence for the disciples, 
which pertains to us today. We are responsible for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own backyards all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus was providing the disciples an object lesson of what would happen at Pentecost, and it would be a prophecy of the future power of the church because Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So they were entrusted with a purpose. They were emboldened with power to carry on what Jesus Christ had began and what he had accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then finally, he was offering them proof. And this is where we get into doubting Thomas. So how should we look at doubting Thomas? I hear a lot of people condemn him because of the fact that he was not present. And then when he was present, he had an opportunity to share his faith. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I actually get to touch the hands and the side of Jesus Christ. I say three things to you if you want to judge Thomas harshly. First of all, be, be careful if you judge Thomas or the disciples for their lack of faith. Ask yourself this question. If you were in their shoes, what would you do? Would you do any better? I know we've studied several passages over the last six weeks. We've looked at the passage with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the man born blind in John 9, and also the... Uh, presentation of Jesus on Palm Sunday in John 12, would we respond different, differently if we were in their shoes, or would we have the same type of doubts that they did? That's a good question for us to ask. I'm not sure any of us have a good answer for that question. I think that we just need to bear in mind that they were faced with a lot of the same challenges that we face. In fact, they were faced with threat of persecution based upon their response to Jesus and a variety of other things because they were being asked to give up their livelihoods in, in order to follow him. For believers, our testimony relies upon the security we have in the eyewitness testimony of these first believers. And ne never underestimate the fact that when the rubber meets the road, our faith relies upon our belief that this is the inspired, authoritative word of God. Never underestimate that. The difference between Christianity and other worldviews is the fact that we believe in a risen Savior, right? And the fact that we believe that the documentation for that risen Savior is in the inspired Word of God. And our testimony relies upon that security. And John's gospel has this in mind. That's why John chose the different miracles that he chose. And that's why he says here in verses 30 and 31 that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible is not written just to give us a lot of historical information and to tell us a bunch of good stories. It's to tell us that Jesus is the Christ. So these are the three things that I would say as we look at Doubting Thomas. How is your faith? How is your faith? Now, I get that quote actually from President George W. Bush. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, David Gregory, who used to work for NBC News, hosted Meet the Press, and he would encounter President Bush a lot, especially during Bush's second term when Bush would appear on NBC and Gregory was the host of Meet the Press. And David Gregory, who's married to a Christian, is actually a Jew. And every time that George Bush would enter into the room with him, whether it be in a group setting or privately, he would just ask him this question, David, how's your faith? Interesting. How, so how's your faith? 
And these are a couple of verses from 1 Peter that link what Jesus had told the disciples in John chapter 20. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have no seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter saw Jesus firsthand, and he said to the early Christians who were having to give their lives in order to follow him, you have not seen him, but you still love him. You still believe in him. You still rejoice with joy. And then he gave a challenge in chapter 3, and this is a challenge for each one of us. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect. So my challenge to you, it's a challenge to me every day when I'm at the hospital sharing my faith with people. Am I, first of all, honoring Christ? And then am I always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks why I believe that Jesus is the Christ? And do I do it in in a tactful and respectful manner? This is a life verse for some people, especially evangelists, who want to know how the gospel should be shared. First of all, you need to be ready. And second of all, you need to do it in a way that's going to bring honor and glory to him because it's done tactfully and respectfully. Now, last Saturday, Carrie and I went to see a movie uh, called The Case for Christ. By the way, it's still out at Regal Cinema in Kingstown this weekend. And it's a great book that was written about 25 years ago. He's added to that series. He sold more than 14 million books. Here's Lee Strobel's testimony. You can read it on the screen as I read it out to you in the slides. Lee Strobel, this is years after he made his confession of faith. He says, for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background is in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical person. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. And he won an award for his uh, writing on the story about Ford covering up the scandal of the Ford Pinto in the late 1970s. And that became a book in 1980. So I needed evidence before I'd believe anything. One day, my wife came up to me. She'd been agnostic. And she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, the backstory to that is that they had a little girl about four years old, and they were eating at a restaurant in Chicago one night, 1980, and their girl uh, choked on a gumball, and this nurse actually rescued the daughter using the Heimlich maneuver, rescued her and got her back to life, saved her life, and then this uh, African-American nurse at Mercy Hospital in Chicago developed her friendship and relationship with Lee Strobel's wife, Leslie, invited her to Willow Creek Church, which was an up-and-coming Mega church in the suburbs of Chicago. So Leslie was the first to become a Christian. She had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who was going to spend all her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. In fact, he told the daughter, four or five years old at the time, we're an atheist family. Don't believe any of this stuff about Jesus. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values. This is Leslie, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. 
So I went to church one day uh, mainly to see if I could get her out of this cult that she'd gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it, that forgiveness is a free gift, and that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there was any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system, for that matter. And that's the second part of the film. It goes into the actual nuts and bolts of Lee Strobel's actual investigation into the historical truth claims of Christianity, primarily focusing on the resurrection and also the reliability of the scriptures. He says, I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And in the movie, he actually does it in their living room. He wanted her to lead, and she said, no, Lee, you need to do it yourself. And just like with my wife, my life began to change. Over time, my values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. It's a great story. The movie, I mean, it's a little cheesy because you have to get over the mustache and the long hairstyles of the early 80s. When I was in high school, I had those type of haircuts and mustache and all that stuff. But if you can get over some of that stuff, the, the story itself is wonderful and powerful. And it's a story that speaks to where many people are at in our world today. They're honestly investigating whether or not Jesus is the Christ. The other thing that Lee told his wife is that it wasn't just all this investigation that won him. It's the fact that she was the real deal. She was an authentic Christian. So when people see us, they're not only looking for facts, they may be wanting us to point them through some of these apologetic tools. They also want to see a life that's authentic and real and on fire for Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's the challenge for today. So go back to the beginning of my message and if You've received Christ, but you're not living the abundant life. You need to recommit to him. If you've never, ever received Christ as your Savior, you need to make a commitment to him for the first time today. And there are several of us who are willing to help you through that process. And if you have that abundant life, your goal and heart's desire needs to be to maintain that zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. As our musicians come forth today, just bow for a few moments and silently where you're at, just ask God for whatever you may need. If you're in that first category, someone who has never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that they would have the courage to be like Thomas, who doubted, but doubted with honesty. And then when he saw the evidence, was willing to put his confidence and trust in Jesus Christ.
if there are people here who have received Christ, but their walk has grown a little bit stale and has lost its vibrancy, I pray, God, that in the quietness of where they're at, they would desire to recommit and reconnect with you. And Lord God, for those who are just really on fire for Jesus, I pray that their prayer would...